1 Samuel 31, we conclude the book together. Now, in my translation, the New King James translation, which I use uh, here in preaching at this time, uh, begins with a header on the beginning of the chapter that says this, the tragic end of Saul and his sons. The tragic end of Saul and his sons. And that is certainly what I have entitled the message tonight, the end of a king. The end of a king. Let's look at it together, 1 Samuel 31 and verse 1. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded By the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in those cities." So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head, stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body, they impelled it to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted. Seven days. The final chapter of 1 Samuel is the conclusion of the reign of Israel's first king. We have to go back all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 8 when Israel demanded to have a king like all the other nations. It wasn't just that they wanted a king that was a problem, it was the fact that they wanted a particular type of king. They specifically stated that they wanted a king like everyone else, like every other nation. Of course, Samuel, the prophet of God, warned them that to have a king like all the other nations would mean that they would experience the same burdens that all the other nations would experience. But instead of listening to them, they totally rebelled. 
Even when Samuel said, look, this king that you think you want is not going to give to you. He's going to take from you. He's going to take, take, take. Here's what they said, 1 Samuel 8. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They would not listen. They were stubborn, set in their ways. They wanted to be like everyone else. And what did God do? God poured out an act of judgment. He gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them a king who was wealthy, a king who was handsome, tall, and strong. That king, as we know, was Saul. Now, his reign began well. 1 Samuel 14 and verse 47 says, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. He harassed the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God. But it was quickly revealed that Saul was filled with pride. And not only was he a man filled with pride, but we found out quickly also that his religion was artificial and his ways were in constant disobedience to God. He was incapable of properly ruling the people of Israel. And so even though it began well, it quickly went south. And for the next 16 chapters as we have studied this, since the moment Saul became king, it has been extremely clear that Israel needed a better future, that they could not thrive under the regime of Saul, under this type of king that they thought they wanted and needed. So we fast forward all the way until we get to the events that took place the night before 1 Samuel chapter 31. You remember Saul is in Indoor. And it was told to him by Samuel, who, by the way, was dead and buried in this unique scene. I don't have time to describe it all to you. You're going to have to go back and read that for yourself, chapter 28. But it was told to Saul by Samuel, who was already dead and buried, all that was going to transpire the very next day. The implications of Saul, his boys, and Israel. Here's what Samuel said to Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 17. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and has given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Well, where was Samuel? Samuel was dead. And so in this moment, Samuel is saying, look, tomorrow, Israel's going to fall. And they're going to fall greatly. And you and your boys are going to die. It's over, Saul. Your reign has come to an end. So in one sense, as we look at chapter 31, the events of this final chapter brings really no surprises. We were already told what was going to happen in this battle. It's not unexpected, so to speak. 
But it's still deeply moving, especially when we consider the sadness of Saul's life. I was thinking about that even in relation to this chapter. If, if you would, it reads like an obituary. This is the conclusion of the whole matter of Saul's life. I will have the privilege to stand before family, friends, and church on Monday and, and declare the wonderful life, a grace life of Wanda Pinder. But not so could be said of Saul. This is sad, deeply sad. And it still moves us even though we knew what was coming. I'm going to use three words to describe the events of 1 Samuel 31. Here's the first word if you want to write these down. The first word, as I mentioned to you in the header of my chapter, is the word tragedy. Tragedy. That's the first word. So when we look at these events, the first thing that comes to our minds is tragedy. Verse 1. Look at it. Chapter 31, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled. They were running for their lives from the Philistines. And as they were doing so, verse 1 says, they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. In those few words, in verse 1, a tragic and catastrophic scene is given to us, isn't it? While David and his mighty men were defeating the Amalekites a hundred miles away, by the way, that scene that we looked at last Wednesday, this is happening simultaneously, all right? It's not that David is just kind of chilling out waiting Israel to fall. No, David is fighting the Amalekites as we looked at last week. At the same time, these events that are going on, I, I can't have time tonight to show it to you, but the construction in Hebrew of verse number one, we can't see it in our English translations, but the way verse one is constructed in Hebrew shows us that this fighting against the Philistines took place at the same time David is fighting against the Malachites. And so while David is a is a hundred miles away, Saul and the men of Israel are here running from and dying by the armies of the Philistines. Now, as all of this unfolds to me, one of the sad and tragic scenes here at the very beginning is this is the reason why Saul was made king. He was made king to drive out the enemies of God. He was made king to fight the Philistines. In fact, that's what the people said they wanted. We wanted a king like everyone else who will fight our battles for us. Well, David is whooping up on the Amalekites. Saul is dying by the hand of the enemy. Verse 2, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. Pay close attention to that phrase, followed hard after them. And what did they do when they found them? The Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. So they were following hard after Saul. It seems that the battle has become strictly about them now. Of course, as we see... Saul's sons being killed. To me, Jonathan is the one that we've become the most familiar with. He's the oldest son. He's responded in an excellent manner to the purposes of God as they became clear to him. Of course, as you remember in our study, Jonathan was the first to recognize that David would be Israel's next king. And he gladly committed himself to David, even though in the terms of the monarchy, the throne rightly belonged to him, but that was not God's choice. Jonathan was not God's choice. David was God's choice. And so we see that David was a righteous fella. 
He was a godly man. He submitted himself to God's plans and purposes, even though that came at an expense to his own plans and purposes, his own rights. So when Saul comes after David, it was Jonathan who consistently took David's side. Jonathan risked his life. He gave up his rights. He knitted his soul to David's. In fact, in the very last conversation that David and Jonathan had, not knowing it would be their last conversation, it was then that Jonathan was expected to play a role in David's coming kingdom. That's how it was going to be set up. So to see his death in 1 Samuel chapter 31 does come as a little surprise. Jonathan did everything right. And yet, he is a victim of Saul's foolishness. Now, I think just as a side note here, Jonathan deserves great honor for many things. Not the least of which is his presence with his father in battle. You think about that? His dad, who has willfully disobeyed God, the man whom God has forsaken, the man who is out to kill his best friend, and yet... He still, he is still right there with his father until his dying days. He remained a true friend to David while at the same time being a faithful son to Saul. He really is a remarkable character. But the tragic scene before us continues. Look at verse 3. The battle became fierce against Saul. Everything was coming toward him. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers and Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me, mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took the sword and fell on it. You see, I think it's in these moments that Saul found himself utterly alone. His sons were now dead at his feet, his own body is wounded, obviously severely wounded to the point that he can make no escape. He realizes it's just a matter of time before the Philistines get to him and then they torture him. That's the phrase he uses here. I don't want them to abuse, to torture, to mistreat me. His body's wounded. He's absolutely afraid of being tortured by the Philistines even when the armor bearer here refuses to take his life. Saul, in this moment, this sad moment of loneliness... Decides that he would just fall on his sword himself. He took his life. Now, I'm not one to make much out of what's not there in Scripture. You know that about me. In fact, it's one of my pet peeves. It's a homiletical disaster for a pastor to stand up or a preacher of any kind and say, well, let me tell you what's not here. I heard a ridiculous sermon one time on the prodigal son and the whole message of pastor was ripping off on women because the mom wasn't present. Let me tell you why the mom wasn't present. Because the Bible didn't record it, not because she was a bad mom. That is a homiletical disaster for any pastor to do that. But I am going to take a moment here to tell you what's not here. <laughs> I can't help but notice Saul's silence toward God. He's saying nothing in these last breaths. It's almost as if he has accepted the fact, sadly, 
that God had forsaken him. And even before falling on the sword, he seems here to make no attempt whatsoever toward repentance. This is a tragedy. Verse 5 tells us that the armor bearer also then fell on his sword. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why, why did that happen? Well, honestly, we, we don't know. Perhaps it was because he would be held responsible for Saul's death if he somehow survived. All we can say for certain is the tragedy of another lifeless body now lay there at Mount Gilboa. In fact, verse 6 summarizes it. Look at it there. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men, all those who were fighting with him that day, died together. It all happened just as Samuel said that it would in Endor. So we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, they saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So we see here again, uh, remember this first word, tragedy. The tragedy just keeps on continuing, right? The rest of these Israelite cities, they realize that they were losing the war, so they decide to abandon town. And as they are abandoning town, the Philistines came in and took those towns over. And this problem was the very reason, as I've already mentioned, why Saul had been appointed king. He had been appointed king to drive out the Philistines. But now Israel, at the end of his reign, is back in the very same position as they were before. Okay? You talk about a State of the Union address. Saul's would have been a disaster, like some other ones we hear from time to time. All joking aside, it's tragic. The second word that describes these events, verse 30, or chapter 31, is the word brutality. Brutality. So think about this. Tragedy, brutality. It wasn't enough just to kill him. Look what happened in verse number 8. So it happened the very next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, which was a common thing, by the way, to go back over and begin accumulating the spoil, the plunder, that they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent Word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth and they fastened, they impaled his body to the wall of Beth Shan. There's a lot of irony here, church family. Just as David cut the head off of Goliath, so did the Philistines to Saul. It seems there's some kind of vengeance move here. We remember what you people did to Goliath, and now you're going to get a taste of it also. Goliath's head off, Saul's head off. They cut off his head, they stripped off his armor. Not only that, they paraded it throughout the land of the Philistines. A parade. They sent word everywhere. The implication here is that they would have carried the head of Saul with them on a platter, if you will, showing what they had done to the God of heaven's king. Brutality. They then placed his armor in the temple. 
which was a big sign to the Philistines. It was just, they were saying, look, our gods defeated the God of Israel by killing their king. And so they parade, they place his armor in the temple of their God. You know, a lot of this, it seems very personal, doesn't it? Extravagant parades, the cutting off of the head as was done in Deliah, then the temple, to guard, temp, temple decor. I don't have time to take you back there tonight, but Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth, which is mentioned here, was the female deity, the female god that was worshipped right alongside of Dagon. You remember the story of Dagon? The temple of Dagon and when the ark of God was placed in that Philistine temple and how Dagon continued to fall I titled the message, Dagon. 1 Samuel 5, let me read it to you. Then the Philistines took the ark of God. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it in the house of Dagon. And they set it by Dagon, right beside of him. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon. They set it in his place again. They put him all back together. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon again, falling on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon, both the palms of his hands, they were broken off. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod of this day. And so here they, they seem to go back again. Hey, we got your king. We got your armor. We remember what you did to Dagon. We're going to put it on Ashtaroth, though, to make sure nothing, nothing funny happens here. All of this is very, very personal. And then verse 10 says, look at it. They fastened his headless body to the wall of Beth Shan. Verse 12 indicates that the body of Saul wasn't the only one to be treated this way. He was there with his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Think of this. His headless corpse impaled on the wall in Beth Shan as a public object of horror and shame. If you've been with us to Israel, you visited this town. I want to show you a little picture there. It's a town right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. Uh, this particular view, and I know it's really hard to see, but we're standing in an amphitheater area looking back toward this high mountain there toward the back. That high mountain would have been where the old walls of Beth Shan uh, were fixed. And it was right there in the middle of the Jezreel Valley, just miles away from Mount Gilboa where they were impaled. I think there's a, impaled, I think there's a second one. This is on top of that mountain where those walls would have been, looking down there in the middle of Jezreel Valley, Mount Gilboa being off to the west they brought them over to this city and there impelled them to the wall headless for everybody to see what they had done to the God of Israel. And that's the point that I want you to see when it comes to this brutality. It wasn't just about defeating Israel, not to the Philistines. It wasn't just about killing Saul. This was about disgracing and mocking Yahweh. The God of Israel. It's for the same reason why such brutality can often extend itself to people of the gospel today. 
As Jesus often reminded us in the New Testament teachings that what they are doing unto you, they are not doing unto you. They are doing it unto me. This tragedy, this brutality, it is because of the Philistine gospel. And the Philistine gospel is anti-God. I wonder who's going to parade the true gospel the right way. Are we going to continue allowing the Philistines of our world to parade their gospel of brutality and hatred toward Yahweh, the God of heaven? When will God's people arise and parade the true gospel of Jesus Christ? It's all wrapped up in this king that the people of God said we wanted. And sometimes God gives us what we want to show us how wrong we were. Let me give you one more final word and we'll wrap this up. It's the word charity. So three words describe the events here. Tragedy, brutality, charity. Charity. Or a very specific act of charity. You might even use the word kindness. Kindness. Because when we come to verse number 11, we see that the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what had happened to Saul's corpse. So, so a group of valiant men, verse 11 says, these valiant men, they arose up in the middle of the night. They traveled all night long to the city of Bethshan. And I made some notes here in my own study. I, I, I wrote down here that these men were courageous. They were courageous. This was a journey through Philistine-occupied territory. It would have been very dangerous for them to do, but they did so. They, with bravery and valiancy and courage, they, they made their way to where these corpses were. Of course, when you think about the process that they would have had to go through just to take their lifeless bodies off the wall without being noticed by the Philistines, the, the whole thing is just amazing just to think and meditate all that they would have done in order to achieve this. So, so these men, these, they, they were courageous. I wrote down here that they were also respectful. They were respectful because when we get to verse 12 and 13, we find out that they gave Saul and his sons a proper burial. A proper burial. Of course, we don't have time to get into all of that, but there is a proper way to handle a lifeless body. And the people of God recognized that. They took their bones and they buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. A tamarisk tree. Now, if you've been keeping up with us, does that sound familiar at all to you? I, I wonder if these men understood the significance of Saul and the tamarisk tree. Because it was in Gibeah. You can read about it as late as chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. It was in Gibeah where Saul used to sit under the tamarisk tree on a regular basis. And he would sit there with a spear in his hand, surrounded by his servants who were serving him and protecting him, guarding him. And the power of all the kingdom was in his possession. It was a picture of comfort, ease, power, authority. But now we see his story coming to an end. Not sitting under the tamarisk tree with power and authority but now being buried under it, stripped of every 
bit of power he once possessed. The king is dead. These men were respectful enough to give him a a proper burial. Then I wrote down that these men, I believe, were grateful. They were grateful regardless of the kind of king Saul was. I believe the desire of these men to show charity and kindness to him was because they had once been delivered by Saul. Remember Saul's reign began fairly well and it began by delivering the city of Jabesh-Gilead. His efforts had spared their lives, protected their families, gave them a fresh hope on life, running the Philistines out of town. And I think they had never forgot that. That's why we see them exercising perhaps a proper burial and along with that fasting. Because they were grateful regardless of how evil and rebellious he had become. They were grateful at least for the good things that he had done for them so long ago. Charity. Charity. Kindness. So, so let's, let's close this up. What do, we, what do we do with all of this, right? I could give you, as we like to say, five points of why you should never impel a body on a city wall. But no, honestly, what do we do with this? Why does God want us to see this? I, I just wrote a couple of things down. I'm sure we could go more exhaustive. I wrote down, number one, I think it's important when we look here to reflect on the tragedy of death. The tragedy of death. This is an obituary. This is the end of a king. This is, this is a glimpse of how a man died and the tragedy of it. Now, when I say reflect on the tragedy of death, I'm, just not, I'm not talking about just the wealthy and mighty. Because the death of any human being is tragic. It reminds us of what sin has done to corrupt God's good creation. And as with Saul, so with us. Disobedience to the word of God has brought death to all of us. We cannot avoid it. Death is in your future. But this is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the perfect king, died himself in complete obedience to the Father's will. Complete obedience. Where we have completely disobeyed God like Saul and now face death. Jesus Christ came in perfection and faithfulness and righteousness, and he completely did what we incompletely did. He completely obeyed his Father's will so that death would never have the victory in our life. That's why we hold on to hope in Jesus, even though we know that the tragedy of death will soon find us. It's a wonderful promise in the New Testament. To be absent from the body, that is the believer's body, is to be present with the Lord in a moment. In the moment. Yes, it's tragic, but our hope is in Jesus. Yet all of us need to pause and reflect on the seriousness of of death. I wrote down number two here, reflect on the futility of human power. Reflect on the futility of human power. So again, the elders of Israel in 1 Samuel 8 believed that a king like every other nation would be the answer to their problems, didn't they? They no longer wanted to be a theocracy that was run by God and God alone. 
to the various judges that God had established. They didn't want to be a theocracy. It was hard for them to follow a God who was invisible. They wanted, they wanted something like everybody else. They wanted a monarchy. We want a king who will fight our battles, they demanded. Human power. Think of this. Human power instead of divine power became their hope and confidence. I want you to really think about this because it is a subtle temptation for all of us, whether it is in our personal lives or in our political dependencies. Reflect on the futility of human power. The children of Israel, they wanted human power. They didn't want divine power. Human power became their hope. Human power became their confidence. But in the end, impelled to the wall of Bethshan and buried under the tamarisk tree was the purest example of the ultimate futility of human power. Psalm 20, David wrote, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Where's your hope and confidence tonight? Is it in human power and strength? Where's your hope in the divine power of God? Reflect on these things. Saul and Israel are in this position because their hope and confidence was placed in man. And then thirdly, reflect on the hope of God's perfect plan, okay? What do we do with this chapter? We reflect on the tragedy of death, we reflect on the futility of human power, and we reflect on the hope of God's perfect plan. So the story of the first king of Israel obviously has been a story of pride, rebellion, and failure. It is a story that has ended in death. But we conclude the book of 1 Samuel by remembering the prayer of Hannah at the very beginning of the book. Hannah prayed, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken into pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Just as Hannah prayed, it's all coming to fruition. And there's no doubt that it was the Lord who brought Saul down. We understand the sovereignty of God. He raises up kings, he brings them down. There is no doubt that God brought Saul down. And it is David whom he has raised up, right? But even David, the man after God's own heart, even David is going to fall. Yet, Israel's true hope and the hope of all the world is not found in Israel's first king. And it won't be found in Israel's second king. It's found in the eternal king of all the universe, King Jesus. It is in Him that we hope, for it is in Him we find God's perfection. 
When we began this study, June of 2020, I entitled the series, A Tale of Three Kings. We come to the end of the first one. We're going to go a little further with the second one. But yet when we get right in the middle of the second one, we're going to find out that God says, there is coming a king whose reign will never end. And it is in him we find our hope. Tragedy, brutality, charity. Let's take seriously death. Let's take seriously that in which we hope in. And may we be stirred once again to trust the perfect plan of God. Let's stand together for prayer.